Many of you guys know that Laura and I spent some time in a, at New Hyde Park Baptist Church in, in, uh, in Long Island in New York. And um, Phil was one of the elders there. As a matter of fact, Phil, I think you were the one that they held responsible for hiring me. Yes, it was, my, it was my fault. Yep. Over the years, we've developed some incredibly precious friends in that church, and many of them are moving here. Jack <laughs> was in that church, and uh, we have some other friends in the, in the uh, congregation today that are from that church. And so when I was knew, knew I was going to lead worship this, this morning, I knew that I needed to find someone to fill in for me. And Phil has a heart for people. You guys, enough, okay? Can you just go on? It's a nice surprise. It's he has a, nice a heart surprise. for truth, and he's been coming to this church. When he, he, Did you know you're old enough to be a snowbird? I am. Because he's been here about six months out of the year. He's been coming to Florida. My wife's not, though. Grace Life in that time. So give a warm welcome to my friend Phil Alba, who's filling in for me today. Well, I got to make sure I first say that my wife's not old enough yet, so I am. Um, but good morning, friends. As Pastor Joe said, my name is Phil Alba, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. Now, I've been a Christian for about 45 years. I've served various leadership capacities, roughly 20 years as an elder in two different churches. I've taught Sunday school, led men's ministry, hosted Bible studies, and along with my amazing wife, Marianne, we've joyfully exercised hospitality. And I have a cool Jesus rescue story. I was born out of wedlock. I mean, I love the song we sang, You Knew Me Before You Laid the Foundations of the Earth. See, I was a mistake, according to the world, but God knew me before he laid the foundations of the earth. Both my parents struggled with substance abuse issues. My dad left when I was very young, but my desire to please dad drew me to church where I met my savior when I was around 12. I grew up on welfare until mom went back to college and made a life for us before she came down with cancer and died when I was 17. My faith has grown through seasons of dark doubt. And I too am a dad, which honestly is my life's greatest joy, but at times, this uptight Pharisee in me impacted my children's ability to confide in me. I love theology and apologetics. I mean, I reason, how can you call... And my in-laws, they survived sermons... I would give while the Thanksgiving gravy grew cold. <laughs> and I've loved Jesus' bride, the church, and I've poured myself out for people who at times underappreciated me and left me feel used and unloved. I've been fired. I've failed in business. I've had some successes. My daughter, Leah, who's here today, was rescued from death's doorstep. I'm a football coach. My wonderful son, James, is my OC, and I coach with assistants that are really great men. And then for about a decade, my family expanded when a young man, Joe, moved in with us after his dad, who was our pastor, suddenly went home to be with the Lord, and we have loved Joe like a son. Bottom line is I've seen a lot in this dark yet beautiful life. 
My name is Phil Alba, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. Now, I share that kind of choppy intro with you, number one, to be authentic, but also because it relates to today's text where Jesus commands his followers to go out on mission in contrast to the dead religion of the Pharisees. And I hope to unpack three things this morning. First, I want to share the firm foundation that allows you to live with a confident hope that you can accomplish the mission. Second, I want to explore the two metaphors, salt and light. And then third, I want to warn you against what Jesus described later in Matthew to the disciples and to us as the yeast of the Pharisees. Because it wages war against the values of the kingdom of God. And I know Pastor Joe's been going through the book of James, and I know he bridged it back to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to talk about that first part because I know you're familiar with it, you know, but I'm going to camp more in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5 today. But let me start with a quick historical background. You know, as you know, Jesus was a, pra- a traveling preacher. And surely this anchor message of the Sermon on the Mount would be heard again by the disciples. But here in Matthew 5, it's likely the first time they've heard this message because they've only been with Jesus for a few short weeks. They've not yet been sent out two by two. They haven't fed 5,000. They haven't participated in miracles. Now, Jesus has. And it's in this very early context that Jesus pulls them to the side and he says this to them. He charges them. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light in all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd come alongside in these next few minutes. I pray that you help me to articulate concisely the things that you've put on my heart and that you would teach all of us what it is to be more like you and to live out these kingdom values. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Does it strike you that it's so early on They've been with him a few weeks, and Jesus, like, raises the stakes. You know, he's declaring to them this profound mission that they're salt and light, you know, and, you know, he's commanding them to let others see all their good works. And it kind of makes me think that they might have thought for a second, I'm a little overwhelmed now, like, hey, what kind of good works are you talking about? I've seen what you do, you know. I'm a tax collector, and everyone hates me. I'm a fisherman. 
And if you this morning, when you read this text, you can feel a little bit overwhelmed by the enormity of the mission. That's okay. Because to be honest, you should. Because if you don't, maybe something's wrong with us a little bit. It is an enormous mission. So I want you to know first thing, the first thing I want to establish is I want to give you some confident hope based on reality, not a pep talk. I'm a football coach. This is real. This is confident hope. It's the foundation. And you see, your foundational hope is not based on what you do or where you've come from. It's founded on who you are. Throughout the ages, men and women, they've pondered the probing question, who am I? And I want to submit to you, I think that's the wrong question. The better question is, whose am I? Amen? Amen? See, Christian, the foundation of your faith is built upon your identity. Now, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to say next is going to offend a good amount of people in this room. I'm bracing myself, but stay with me. If you're one of the many Christians, like so many that go around saying, we are all God's children, I need you to see that that's actually an unbiblical position. I want you to turn with me or look up here at John 1, verse 12. See, now what Scripture does affirm clearly is that all men and women are precious image bearers of Creator God. Everyone was made on purpose for a purpose. Every human life is valuable and experiences the blessings of common grace and the creation of Creator God. But the Bible's clear that while every human being is a valuable image bearer, even the politician you hate, not every human being is a child of God. Look at what it says here. It says, but to all who did receive him, qualifier, to all who believed in his name, qualifier, he gave them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. See, it's identity. It's the most important aspect of your life, Christian. See, personally, that's why it doesn't matter that I was a mistake according to the world. I'm not a mistake. I, was a, I am an adopted son, planned before the foundations of the earth, predetermined to do specific good works for this kingdom that Jesus ushered in. And see, it's not just some religious belief or some whimsical hope. Well, I hope it's true. See, it's my identity. I've been grounded in it. It anchors me. It's weathered the doubts. Despite my remaining pharisaical tendencies and sinfulness. And if you have received this one who is full of grace and truth, you share that same glorious identity. Look at verses 13 to 14. It says, you are 
the salt of the earth. Not like, hey, I'm going to train you to be this. You know, you, you, maybe you can do some of this. No, you are. This is your identity. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it's a singular the. Notice the the. See, it's not one of many lights. And it's not your own light. Just as the moon doesn't have its own light, it merely reflects the light of the sun so true is it with our lives. So Christian, if you sit here this morning and you're feeling bland and you're dimly lit, feeling maybe weary and discouraged, the first thing God wants you to do is seize your identity. Remember whose you are. Now, you're an adopted son and daughter into the family of the one who lived the perfect and flawless combination of salt and light, grace and truth, who not only kept the law, but he fulfilled its purposes. And just as Jesus called his disciples, he has called you, he's adopted you, he's laid claim over your life, and not only do you have a seat at the family table, you get to participate in the family business. And I pray that if you don't hear anything else today, that you would lay hold, that you would be renewed by the glorious sense of your identity. The other thing I want you to see here is the you. Um, the you, it's, it's not singular, it's plural. It's a collective you. It's we the church. We are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You see, it's bigger than just you. I mean, would you go to Connor's Steakhouse? Uh, I, I know Connor's, yeah. <laughs> would you go to Connor's Steakhouse, take one fleck of salt, drop it on the steak? That'd be ridiculous. It's multiple flecks of salt that we want to spread out so it flavors the whole beef, and that's the role of the church. That's the you, singular and community. Now, the Christian life, the other thing is, like, you've got to remember, it's, like, it's bigger than your Jesus and me, personal experience, it's bigger than that you like get to avoid judgment, go to, you know, you experience heaven when you die. See, the kingdom has already been ushered in. The not in its fullness, but it's already here. It's already now. So step into your identity and participate in the family business. Now, second, let's look at these two metaphors of salt and light. So what were the primary functions of salt back in the first century? A couple of quick things. The first thing is, it was a preservative, right? No sub-zero back then. You hunted, you broke down the meat or the fish, and you salted it so it wouldn't spoil. Part of the family business is preserving the truth. Now how can we preserve the truth unless we know the truth. And that's why, figuratively, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to write it across the doorposts of our house. We're supposed to walk and talk about it with our children. We're supposed to memorize. We're supposed to contemplate. We discuss God's word with other adopted sons and daughters. How else could we preserve it? So salt, besides being a preservative, it, it's similar, but it's a little different. It also prevents decay. 
the decay of our family and friends, people in our sphere that we love. And yes, there is a place for Christians to be involved in civic matters so that we can stem the societal decay. But listen, we must do this with the Beatitudes in mind. Got to listen to coach. And last, salt also flavors. I mean, my family loves to cook. We cook together. I do these stupid cooking videos. It's, you know. But anyway, even if you don't cook, you probably have enough understanding to know that it's probably not a great idea to take a chicken, put it in a pot of unsalted water, and just boil it. Unless you want to get rid of your guests. Or maybe have some, you know, health things. But generally speaking, not a great move when you're cooking, right? We want to salt our food because it gives flavor. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This metaphor carries throughout the scripture. Now, there is a warning in verse 13, right? It says, but if, if salt has lost its taste... No good, no bueno. See, now the Greek word for lost here is moreno, from which we get the translation moron. <laughs> so with love in my heart, please don't be a moron. <clears throat> don't lose your saltiness. Now on the other hand, let's look at the flip side. Like my brother-in-law, Sean, out of his mind. He, he likes salt so much that he layers it on the steak that it's like, how much snow is it? Is it one inch today? Is it three inches? You can't even see the meat. And if you took a bite of his steak, your lips would pucker. It would not be a pleasant experience. And that's why Paul encourages us in Colossians, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. See, it's about wisdom and nuance. Now, let's talk about light. So, I know here in Florida, power outages are pretty common. Now, imagine you lose power in the dark of the night. You bump around, you find two flashlights. You know, now you've got to find batteries because, of course, they're dead. Um, you turn one of them on, and then you give it to Johnny. Hey, Johnny! Get the salad bowl. And then you find the other flashlight and you find, hey, Lucy, go put this one under the bed. Okay, Daddy. Now, as ludicrous as that sounds, this is the exact picture that Jesus is painting for us. What are the attributes of light? Right? Throughout the entire Bible. Darkness and light are used. Darkness is associated with lostness, fear, evil, judgment. Light is always connected to being found, being safe, giving direction, wholeness. It's good. It's loving. And remember two things as it relates to this mission of glorifying dad by being salt and light. Darkness is present in the absence of light. 
And then the second thing that I want you to grab hold of is when the surroundings grow dark, the one holding the light attracts those who are afraid of the dark. So be salt and light because you are the light of the world. Don't place your light under a bowl. Raise it up high. Let your good works shine out. Not for your own praise. Why? To give glory to heavenly dad. Now, leading to the third point, I kind of need to warn you that as you seek to conduct the family business, the evil one hates you. He wants to destroy you and put you out of the salt and light business. And one of his best tactics is, listen, to deceive people into thinking that the greatest enemy is a godless culture sliding further into darkness by the day. That we ought to somehow focus on garnering power so that we can impose our family values on those outside the family. And deadly consequences result when the church begins to function more as a political lobbying organization instead of a grace-filled community of salt and light. So the football coach in me implores you to take courage, to fight, and to stick to the game plan. Don't call an audible. Trust the coach who happens to be your savior and the God of the universe and let his perfect love cast out all fear. Jesus knows the kingdom values of the Beatitudes, which we don't have time to review, but I know you know them. He knows they're countercultural and how enticing it is to fight our own way. That's why later in Matthew, Jesus pulls the guys aside and he says, fellas, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees because it's insidious and it doesn't take much to leaven in a bad way the whole dough. So what describes this insidious yeast of the Pharisee that it dishonors heavenly dad? Well, Joe and Laura have reservations at Connors, so I don't have time to share all of them with you. They told me you better shut up at 30 minutes. So I'm going to share one. I'm gonna, there's many, but I'm going to share the biggest one that over the last several years has deeply convicted me personally, and maybe it resonates with you. Simply put, I want to see people the way Jesus saw them. See, the Pharisees' religiosity, it blinded their ability to see the humanity in people. The Pharisees, rather than caring for the beggar, blind, born from birth, they want to discuss theology. Oh, good teacher, please tell us who sinned that this man might be born blind, mom or dad? See, and that dehumanization, it didn't just pollute the Pharisees. It polluted those around them, too, so much so that Jesus had to meet the woman at the well during the hottest part of the day. Why? Because she was so shamed and rejected by her community. 
So much so that her self-loathing and despair moved her to choose struggling through the heat and loneliness rather than endure the, the scorn and the shame of the self-righteous. And instead of rejoicing over a healing, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. And they were livid when Jesus ate at Zacchaeus' home. I mean, and, and other times they'd ask him, why does Jesus hang out with those kinds of people? I mean, you're actually going to break bread in this intimate way of relationships? Because that's what eating with someone was back then, still is. I'm half time. <laughs> See, and, but it's, the yeast of the Pharisees is so pervasive that it goes beyond the Pharisees. His own disciples resented that Jesus called Matthew the tax collector to follow. And it's so insidious that we see perfume and money being wasted instead of a broken woman worshiping her Savior. See, there's so many more stories that I don't have time to share, but you get my point. You see, when we start Stop seeing the brokenness and the humanity in people. We've been taken out of the salt and light business. Now, in the first century, you know, Pharisaism might have been described as 613 laws, you know, about cleaning pots, about fatted calves, about dietary restrictions. Now, thankfully, today, we're far too sophisticated to judge people on eating shrimp and, you know, bacon. So instead, we pick vaccines and masks and other things. Church, if we want to be truly transformational, we've got to stop fighting culture wars and focus on broken people who need the light of Jesus. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Look to Jesus as your example. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't just forgive them. Think of the leper. He could have just spoke healing from a far distance, but he chose proximity because that man hadn't felt human touch by another human being for so long. People would walk by, run away, unclean, unclean. So Jesus comes up to him and touches him and restores healing, but restores his humanity. And Jesus didn't just heal the blind man. He allowed the blind man to fully enter into the glorious experience by spitting on the ground, by making mud, by rubbing it on his eyes, and then it gets cooler. He lets him participate in the healing. He says, go wash. The humanization of the healing. The whole person. And he took the shame of the humiliated prostitute. And he stayed there. Suffering with her. 
until every single one of her pharisaical accusers had left. He remained. And then he spoke life into her broken spirit. Woman, where are your accusers? And when she acknowledged that they had left, Jesus completed the healing of her sin and shame, declaring, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And what he was saying is, Embrace the flourishing life that I have to offer you, not this life of death. You see, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he met her with both grace and truth. He didn't deny her past. He spoke truth into it, highlighting that, yes, she had many husbands, but that grace and mercy and forgiveness, renewal, They were available to her. Woman, if you drink this water that I give you, it will quench your parched and thirsty and broken spirit forever. And for the first time, that woman experienced what it meant to be truly set free in the fullness of her humanity. My friends, this is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, your Redeemer, Rescuer, and Friend. And if you don't know Him this morning, if you have not yet basked in the radiance of His glorious light, don't leave this place until you talk to me or you talk to Joe or the loving leaders that are here. Don't leave. Step out of darkness into his wonderful light. And if you do know him, if you are one of his adopted sons and daughters, seize your identity. Courageously participate in the family business to which he has called you to. Embrace the Beatitudes, as confusing as they are. Does Jesus really mean that? (laughs) Listen, it's a safe place. I get it. I think the same thing. Trust the coach. (sighs) Don't accept lesser brands. And maintain a healthy position on theology. Like, don't be the clanging symbol that Paul describes in verse 13. Lots of truth, lots of noise, no love. Right? But at the same time, at the same time, theologically equip yourself that you can be obedient to Peter's charge in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the hope that lies within you, salt and light. Now, how can you do that without theology? That's why it's not just good to love people and be compassionate in some kind of general sense. You need to build a bridge to your love and compassion, to your flavored seasoning and your light giving, to the one and the source, the one source from which it comes. 
That's why I remember this balance of grace and truth. Remember the question that Jesus was asked. What's the greatest commandment? And he said, what? Love the Lord your God, what? So, and? And mind, theology. You got to know stuff. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Truth and grace, theology and love, all together lived out in flesh and blood. This is the king that we serve. This is his mission. So finally, let me just say thank you. I hear so many good things about this church from my friend. He loves you. You have a great pastor. His wife's okay, too. Thanks for doing the tangible stuff like the food pantry, feeding people. Thanks for bearing burdens. Thanks for receiving and helping people who recover from addictions. Thanks for pointing people to the truth, for caring about truth and theology, and for being the hands and feet and heart and eyes of Jesus. Have courage. Seize your identity and remember and be encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. Do not be weary for doing good, for in due time you will receive your reward if you do not give up. God bless you, church. Phil, thank you so much for sharing that truth and challenging us. You know, it's a really hard balance being a church that embraces both theology and grace. But I believe that you are a congregation that really gets it. I think it's, I would say this is probably the best church I've ever been in when it comes to that stuff. Right? Dear Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you have put us in the family business of salt and light. But Lord, we confess to you that we are, we are incapable of doing this on our own. And we're thankful that you have given us the theology that teaches us that you have created these good works for us beforehand that we trip over. But we thank you for this perfect gift of faith that has put us in this business and Lord, as Phil was speaking this morning, I couldn't help but think about how, as followers of Jesus, the thing that probably distracts us the most, it's not, it's not the outside world, it's our own fights and battles within. So Lord, we pray that you will continue to help us to grow in our understanding of, in our commitment to this family business that Phil was talking about today. We thank you so much for our time together this morning. We've been refreshed and renewed by your spirit and by your word. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you, church. See you next week.